as you're turning, if you are interested in Upward, uh, we will be having a meeting afterward in the fellowship hall uh, for those who are interested in being involved in Upward. We do need folks who can help coach. Uh, we have some who will be helping in the concession stand, so you might be able to help with some logistics there. Uh, you may be able to help in some other areas during the course. And there were some things that we discussed last time that we are trying to clarify this time, meaning some of the ideas that we had, we've tried to put them to paper. And so if you're able to be here right afterwards, we sure would appreciate it. Isaiah chapter 6. As we are going through the book of Isaiah right now in our daily Bible reading, and as we come up on our missions conference now and just over a week away, we come to Isaiah 6 and we have a hand-in-glove scenario. In verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, this is Isaiah, saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. And he said, go and tell this people. God is still in the sending business today. He is still looking for individuals who will go in his name and deliver the message that he has. But before we can ever get to that stage, we have to get the whole context here and we come to the place where Isaiah is standing. And in a vision, God reveals, I would argue, just an element of himself. This is not all of who God is. But he gives now just a little bit of a glimpse to Isaiah. Do you understand? For you and I to ever do anything for God, we have got to get a glimpse of God. J just a little bit of who God is. When we come and begin to grasp an understanding of the God of all eternity, it changes our perspective on everything. Look at the way that Isaiah describes him. The Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. There is a beautiful picture here of God. And as Isaiah goes along and he sees God, he begins to get a different perspective on all that God has for him. Verse 1 sets the context behind this entire picture now that Isaiah is beginning to get of God. You see in verse 1 we see in the year that King Uzziah died. 
The reason that this is so important is we begin now to have a contrast. A contrast between King Uzziah, a great earthly king, and God in heaven, the king of all eternity. As Isaiah even refers to him here in just a few verses. And when we get this contrast, it helps the weak human mind to understand a little bit more of who God is. One of the problems that we have in getting a glimpse of God is pride gets in our way of seeing God. Throughout the Old Testament, we see kings who are brought to a position of authority. Most of the time, not because of anything that they've done on their own, simply because of the fact that they inherited the kingdom. The northern and southern kingdom are divided, and at a point through this process, God brings along individuals who still have a heart for him. Now, it doesn't happen often. In fact, there's really only about six times we see this. And out of those six times, only three do we actually see the nation kind of turning back around with some spiritual revival. But Uzziah is one of those kings that during this time actually has a heart for God. Hold your place here in Isaiah chapter 6 and join me in 2 Chronicles, if you will. In 2 Chronicles 26, we get a glimpse now of who this King Uzziah really is. And as we look at him, it helps us to understand the contrast between King Uzziah and between God. Here King Uzziah, verse 4, the Bible tells us, And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah did. Now, this seems simple. But this is big, because that epithet is not given to many of the kings. So the very fact that here's a man who comes on the throne and comes on the scene as a king and actually has a heart for God and actually does that which is right in the eyes of the Lord, that in and of itself is no small feat. This is a unique situation. But Uzziah has a good heart, and he begins to follow the Lord. And as a result, the Lord begins to bless him. And he sought God in the days of Zechariah, this is verse 5, who had understanding in the visions of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God made him to prosper. Now, if you will, skip down with me to verse 8. In verse 8, and the Ammonites excuse me, gave gifts to Uzziah. And his name spread abroad even to the entering in of Egypt, for he strengthened himself exceedingly. His might begins to grow, and he builds these great buildings to his name. Look at verse 9. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, and at the valley gate, and at the turning of the wall, and fortified them. Also, he built towers in the desert and digged many wells. He is just prospering. He's seeking God, and as a result of seeking God, God's saying, look, hey, if you're going to follow me, I can bless you, Uzziah. And Uzziah just takes off, and his kingdom's doing so well, so much so that even the mighty nation of Egypt begins to hear about him. Skip down now, if you will, to verse 16. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God and went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense upon the altar of incense. Now we look at that, we've got to go, wait, 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 wait. I, I'm not understanding this. Here's a guy who's doing great. God's blessing him. He's making his way to prosper. And as he begins to do better, his heart gets lifted up. And as his heart gets lifted up, the great sin that he's guilty of is he goes into the temple to offer incense. 
He, he goes into the temple to worship God. This is the problem. I, I'm failing to see this here. But what's happening now is all of a sudden, here's a king who in all of his power, in all of his prosperity, in all of his might, begins to think that he's worthy of positions he's not worthy of. We go on to read there in verse 17. And Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him fourscore priests of the Lord that were valiant men. And they withstood Uzziah the king, and said unto him, It appertaineth not unto the Uzziah to burn incense unto the Lord, but to the priests, to the sons of Aaron, that are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for thou hast trespassed. Neither shall it be for thine honor from the Lord God. And Uzziah was wroth, and had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was wroth with the priests, the leprosy even rose up in his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord and beside the incense altar. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked upon him. And behold, he was leprous in his forehead, and they thrust him out from thence. Yea, yea, himself hasted also to go out because the Lord had smitten him. And Uzziah the king was a leper until the day of his death. Uzziah's pride creeps in. And he says, no, I'm worthy. I'm coming in to worship God, and I don't care what you say. And the priests, they, they bring in a huge group of men. And they go, no, 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 you can't do this. This isn't for you. This is for the sons of Aaron. God ordained this. This is not our decision. This was God's plan, and you can't do this. Uzziah gets angry. How dare you tell me what I can and cannot do? How much does that sound like the average American today. We have been blessed and we have been made so prosperous. Today, in our area, if a house goes up for sale on the market and it stays on the market for more than two or three weeks, we instantly know there's something wrong with that house because they just don't stay on the market that long. We are in an economic time in which God's blessings are evident all around us. You don't think that's true? Drive by the lake and look at all of the boats that are out there and how much those boats run these days. God has allowed our country to see great prosperity. And you know what? We ought to be thankful for that. But in that prosperity, we have created more and more need in our lives and we have become more and more boastful and more and more proud of who we are and what we've accomplished. And before long, we begin to get the attitude just like Uzziah had. How dare you tell me what I can't do? In fact, isn't it true among most Christians? You walk into church, and if the church does something you disagree with, far be it that I'm wrong... I'll just go find another church. And we've developed a heart and an attitude that's just like Uzziah's. And in our prosperity, we've got to be careful because we're missing seeing God because our pride has gotten in the way of it. For Uzziah, it took God giving him leprosy separating him from his family, living in a house of a leper until the day of his death for him to recognize that, yes, he had sought after God, 
but the pride of his own heart had lifted him up. If we are to do great things for God, we have to make sure that he's God and that we don't try to make ourselves God. When you go back to the book of Isaiah and you now look in contrast, in the year that King Uzziah, the great and prosperous king, the king who had led armies, who had built mighty towers, the king who in pride tried to go in and do something that God had not given him the authority to do, the king who had lifted himself up, the king who, though he thought he was powerful, couldn't even offer incense because he wasn't worthy. The king who got the disease of leprosy that was a commoner's disease. The king who separated from his family and died. In that year, God comes to Isaiah and says, this is what an earthly king can do. Now look at who I am. Here is the Lord. The word Lord here is not the Jehovah God that we see often throughout. This is that idea of Adam, the God who is the, the master sitting on high. And there he is high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. Now there are some of you who will remember this in here. Some of you will have no clue what I'm talking about. Uh, I can remember years and years ago now as a small child, my mom who is here, so you can give her a hard time about this later, making us kids. And when I say making us kids, she was awake, so we woke up, kind of a deal. Getting up early in the morning to watch one of the royal weddings that took place over in England. And best I can remember, I, it was the red-headed lady, which I think was Fergie, is that her name? Anyway, forgive. It, it, it was that wedding, best I remember as a small child when this happened. The only thing I remember about it is I remember them showing this picture from up high in whatever cathedral they were in. And this lady walking down the aisle and her wedding dress just dragging on and on forever. And as a small boy, I'm thinking, why in the world would anyone ever in their right mind wear that? And of course, all the girls think this is just the most beautiful thing and this was amazing and this was fairy tale and all of that. And I'm just going, but why? The picture here is that God is in heaven and his glory is more majestic than anything this world has ever seen. And in the pomp and circumstance of this incredible royal wedding and all that it was to represent and all the beauty and splendor that that long flowing gown was to be, it was nothing compared to the glory of God as he is high and lifted up. Above, it stood the seraphims each one with six wings, and he covered his face and his feet, and he did fly, and he cried unto another, said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. It is the picture going back to when the temple was dedicated and when all the sacrifices of Solomon are made, and the glory of God fills the temple, and at that moment, the majesty of God on earth. And here Isaiah is looking in heaven, 
and he's seeing a far greater majesty. And he sees, and the smoke, it's probably because to actually have been able to see would have killed him. And there is, at this moment, a transcendence about God. And for you and I, the picture here is that we are to make God transcendent in our life. Uzziah was just a man. And in the year he died, Isaiah gets to see the king of all eternity who has no beginning, who has no end, whose glory fills the earth. And at the very mention of his holiness, the posts on the wall begin to shake because of the might and glory of God. And Isaiah looks at him. He sees transcendent God who is up above. And he recognizes, I'm not worthy. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I, I don't deserve to be here because God is so far above me. It is the fallacy of humanity to think for a moment that we can bring God down to our level. level. Jesus Christ in his humanity walking on earth veils his glory. And in the aspects of Christ's earthliness, we tend to try and bring God down. We cannot do it. God is so much bigger than a picture on a wall of a man sitting at a table with 12 others eating a meal. You see, Jesus Christ veiled his glory. And his glory was such that when he looked at those soldiers who came in to crucify him, to take him away to court, and they say, are you Jesus? And he says, I am. That the glory of his voice and the fact that he declares himself God causes them all to fall. And when we keep God, and we get a glimpse of God, and we keep him big and transcendent and above all the fray of life, at that moment we understand and we get a glimpse of God because you see in his transcendence God is above the fray of life the, the, the fuss of life look no matter how good your life is no matter how perfect your life is you have the fuss of life you, you just have things and events that can frustrate you you have things that get you off course you have things that distract you often they are good things but they keep us from the best things and that fray drives us God is not driven by the fray God in heaven looks down on humanity and there is no pressure on him can you imagine life without pressure it, it doesn't matter what stage of life you're in there are things that create that angst that create that pressure on you God never experiences that God is never overwhelmed God is never rushed He's transcendent. He looks at all of it, and he knows. He just knows. And in the fact that God is up above that fray, and we are made in the image of God, we have the ability to go through our life and to live our life above the fray as well. We don't have to go through life living in all this angst and pressure. We come to God, and that's why Jesus said, look, my yoke is easy. My, my burden is light. Because all of this stuff that you're so worried with, I'm not worried with it. 
from the time we are children, we start off void of that worry. And we go through just enjoying. And yet things begin to form in our mind and life begins to help us understand and to see. And before long, fret starts creeping in. And it's a sad thing as an adult when you see a small child who is going through life and, and they're going through things they should never have to go through. And they have stress in their life and they have anxiety in their life. And you're going, they're, they're just a child. They shouldn't have to deal with that. And yet there is a God in heaven who is high and lifted up. And you and I are here on earth and we are his child. And he's going, you don't have to go through this. You don't have to worry about that. Isaiah, I need you to deliver a message to my people. And, and he's going to give the message here in just a minute. But he says, I, I got a message for you to deliver. And Isaiah, I, I recognize that there are some problems going on in the nation of Israel. But Isaiah, I'm way up here. I am so much bigger than all of that. Get out of the fray of life. Isn't the reality that in your day today, you want to get out of the fray of life? And you look at certain things and you go, man, I just wish that would go away. And God's saying, it doesn't need to go away. You just need to stop worrying about it. You see, it's there in my existence too. And it's not pressuring me at all. You go, well, yeah, sure, God, but you know how to fix it. He's going, yes, and? I know how to fix it, and I love you. So why are you worried about trying to fix it? Let me fix it. And we go through life just struggling in the fray. I say, you don't have to live in the fray. Come up above the fray. And he helps him to understand how to do this. Verse 3, and one cried unto another, holy, holy, holy. Verse 5, then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Jehovah of hosts. I have seen now a king who is so much greater than Uzziah. The next king is coming on the scene after Uzziah and Isaiah and the rest of the people. They don't know what to expect. They don't know what's going to happen. But yet, now, Isaiah sees there is a king who is a covenant God, who has power over the host of heaven, and he is not going anywhere. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs of the altar, and he laid it upon my lips, and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. God is holy. We cannot forget that. We cannot undermine that. In the day and age in which we live, in which holiness is downplayed, let us not forget that God is holy. In God, you have a perfect accumulation of attributes. In him, there is an absolutely perfectly loving God who, as we looked at this morning, delighteth in the son he has to correct. But the reason he loves and delights in that son and yet still corrects that son is because he is holy. These two are never at conflict. They are always in perfect balance and harmony. And so here... Isaiah recognizes his own sinfulness. 
And as he sees the thrice holy God and the declaration that heaven makes about him, as he gets a glimpse of God, Isaiah's natural reaction, as it is for anyone who gets a glimpse of God, is woe is me. He's holy and I am not. The individual who brags of their own holiness has no concept of what holiness really is. Because in light of God, the best of us is not much. And when we come to God's holiness, we begin to see this purity, this set-apartness. R.C. Sproul defined it this way. The primary meaning of holy is separate. It comes from an ancient word that is meant to cut or to separate. Perhaps even more accurate would be the phrase, a cut above something. When we find a garment or another piece of merchandise that is outstanding, that has a superior excellence, we use the expression that it is a cut above the rest. This means that the one who is holy is uniquely holy, with no rivals or competition. When the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendently separate. He is so far above and beyond us that he seems almost totally foreign to us. To be holy is to be other and to be different in a special way. Just as God is holy, we are called to holiness. We are called to be separate, cut, divided, made different. So that when I come before God and I see his perfectness and I see my sinfulness and I declare woe is me for I'm a man of unclean lips and then this angel comes to Isaiah and purges away his iniquity. I have the privilege that Isaiah did not have and that my sin has been purged by the blood of Jesus Christ. It has been atoned. It has been covered. It is paid for completely and eternally. And because my sin is covered and taken away from me, I don't carry the weight and the burden of that sin. Instead, I walk in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when I see a holy God, I know that I have access to his presence, not because of who I am, but because of who Jesus Christ is. And in that holiness, I come before God based on the holiness of Christ. I come, I recognize then that I now have a responsibility. As we see in Romans chapter 6, according to Paul, as the Holy Spirit leads him, that I am to become the servant of righteousness. I am to yield myself because I have been called to be separate. I have been called to be holy. Once the process had taken place here in which his mouth is purged, then we come to verse 8. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? There is a call. There was in that day, there is to this day. God is still looking for those who will go into a harvest field that is white unto harvest and who will go and will glean the harvest. And we say, who will go? Who will go? Who is going to tell, and let's forget for a second, those in the 40 villages in Papua New Guinea who are begging for churches. Let's forget about those halfway around the world in the 1040 window who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. Who's going to tell the person who sits in a cubicle next to you? Who's going to tell the neighbor that God let live feet from you? 
Who's going to tell? Who's going to go? God is still looking for those who will go. And they're a prerequisite. You must be surrendered. When Isaiah was confronted with all of this, his answer was not, look at who I am. His answer is, I am undone. There is nothing about me, God, that is worthy of this. God, I am not Uzziah. I have a right to come in. I don't have a right. Instead, there is now in Isaiah a surrender that says, okay, what do you want me to do? One of my favorite passages is there, the New Testament, when the Lord says, look, we're unprofitable servants, for we have done that which is our duty to do. We just think that we're a gift to God. And we're not. Do you realize there used to be a joke going around that parents would say to their kids, something to the effect of, man, if you don't straighten up, I'll just make another one just like you. Well, your parents can't actually do that, but you know who actually could? God can make another one just like you and better. And yet, he still loves you and he still wants to use you. But until you're surrendered to say, God, I will do what you want me to do. We have this false fallacy and we recognize the worldliness of the philosophy that, that this life is all that I get and I need to make the most out of this life. The reality is, I don't need to make the most out of this life. I don't. Because in defining I need to make the most out of this life, most of the time we define that most by some worldly standard. I need to make exactly out of this life what God wants me to make out of this life. And if in this life, God has a faithful call that has very little visible most, okay, okay, why would I fight that? You see, my responsibility is not to make the most. My responsibility is to be surrendered and to let God make of me what he will. I am to sow, I'm to water, but God gives the increase. So when I surrender to what he has, he leads my way. And the first thing is I surrender that he will lead me to his holiness. In Timothy, we learn that there are many vessels, but that God can only use a clean vessel. And as we go through life and we pile on the iniquity of this world, we're not holy, we're not usable. And the first thing that had to happen here for Isaiah is Isaiah had to get a glimpse of God and recognize who God is and become undone so that then his iniquity could be purged. It is true that the blood of Christ has washed away all of my sin. But my fellowship with God and his ability to work through me and his ability to produce fruit in my life is dependent on my yieldedness to him and nothing else. So when I am yielded, I will move out of my life those things that are breaking my fellowship and I will become surrendered and I will become holy and I will be humble. When I am humble before God 
and I recognize who he is, you don't see anywhere here in Isaiah any aspect in which he lifts up himself, any aspect in which there's any pride in what he has accomplished or what he has done. Everything here is all about how unbelievable God is and how little he is. So that God says, who shall I send? Who will go for us? In his surrender, he says, then said I, here am I, send me. If you don't hear go, it's because you haven't felt the woe. Too often we say, well, I don't feel like God's telling me to go. I don't feel like God's sending me to talk to that person. The only reason you don't feel that way is because you haven't come to the woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. When you come to the place where you get that glimpse of God and you fall on your face in front of him, then God's command to go becomes real obvious. And here's the thing that I think is most true for you and I today. We look at the world around us, especially here in the States, and we say, but, but pastor, if I go, nobody wants to hear it anymore. Nobody wants to hear about God anymore. There's access all over. They can go on the internet, and there's this pushback, and, and people just don't, they're not open to the gospel anymore. Join me in verse 9. And he said, go and tell this people. All right, so God has now said to Isaiah, go and tell this people. Now look at what group of people in the message that Isaiah has to tell. Hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant and the houses without man and the land be utterly desolate and the Lord have removed men far away and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. But yet in it shall be a tent, and it shall return and shall be eaten as a teal tree and as an oak whose substance is in them. And when they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. Now, we're not going to take time to look at everything and all the meaning there in verses 9 through 13. But let me ask you this. Does this look like a cheery proposition? I mean, Isaiah, Go! Go to a group of people who aren't going to listen, who aren't going to see, who aren't going to understand, and who aren't going to do anything about it. Well, how long, Lord, until I destroy them all? Um, okay. What a great job Isaiah has here. Do you understand? The difficulty of the hour doesn't diminish the call. I don't believe that our hour is anything like this. I, I, I don't believe it. I believe that we live in a day and age in which God in his infinite power is still longing for individuals who will be holy enough that he can use them to open a door that no man can shut. And I believe that God has a desire to reach people all over the world, Ackworth, Cherokee County, Cobb County included. I don't believe for one second that God in heaven is going, eh, 
I'm done with that area. Let's move on to the next. I believe there's a God in heaven who's saying, oh, that my people would get a glimpse of me and would come before me undone, surrendered, holy, humble, so that I can say, go. Go make a difference. I don't know what the Lord has for us as a church in the next couple of weeks. I don't know what messages Brother John will be preaching on world evangelization. I don't know how God will speak in each heart. But I know this. He's not going to speak in any hearts until we get a glimpse of him. So my desire tonight is not to look at anyone in here and say, I believe God's calling you to go to the mission field. That's not, that's not what I'm saying tonight. My desire tonight is not to say, hey, we need to give more money to send more people to the mission field. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, we need to get a glimpse of God. And when we can see God and in turn respond the way that Isaiah did, and we can be those individuals that God says, who will go for me? And we can honestly, clearly before God say, hey, God, I'm ready. I'll go. Tell me what you want me to do. Then God can lead. I don't want to be a pastor who tries to lead people into a place that's not where God's leading them. I want to be a pastor who challenges you to open your heart and your mind to say, okay, God, what is it you have for me? Let's pray. Father, I don't know what you have for the people in this room. Lord, I genuinely believe that there are young people in this room tonight that, God, you're going to do something through them. And that, Lord, as you tarry, it may be that one day we are having a service in which we send one of these young people off to a mission field. Father, it may be that we have a service one day in which we ordain one of these young men to go into the preaching ministry. Father, those things I don't know, but I believe that they're very clearly something you could do in our church. Father, one thing I have no doubt of is that there are people that are within the sphere of influence of us this evening that need us to be holy, that need us to be surrendered, that need us to be humble servants of you, that need us to go to them. And Lord, whether it's neighbors or families that we're associated with through ball teams or whether it's school influence, work, God, I, I don't know. I don't know. But Lord, I do know this, that you have brought people into our lives who need you and you have given us the opportunity to be those servants. And Lord, may we not shy away from that, but may we be bold. And Father, the reason we so often shy away is we don't hear the go because we haven't felt the woe. We haven't gotten a glimpse of you. We think too highly of ourselves. And as Uzziah's pride got in his way, Father, ours does. And help us tonight. Help us tonight to search our hearts and to see what is between us and you. To help us get a glimpse of your perfect holiness. To see you high and lifted up. 
to begin to transcendently view this life as not, let me get the most out of it, but instead, let me completely surrender to Father you and allow you to use us wherever you see fit.